you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to today's episode. Today, I am chatting to the incredible Sarah Pavillard. Sarah is a weapons engineer, and she's the founder and CEO of a company called Adroita, which is a defense professional services engineering and advisory firm. She has grown this business from an idea, a spark of an idea, and a one-man band to now a multiple seven-figure consultancy, a, a finalist in a whole heap of industry awards, and she is constantly growing. This woman is on a mission. And one of the the key things she shares in this podcast is this concept of if the fire is in you, then it's up to you to explore, to experiment, and to find a way to follow it. Sarah on this podcast takes us through her experience in the defense. She has nearly 25 years of defense experience working both as a naval officer and as a consultant. Uh, During this time, she supported the Department of Defense um, here in Australia. She was deployed overseas and she has worked on some huge, huge uh, destroyer warfare programs here in Australia. Fundamentally, she's obsessed with finding simple solutions inside complex problems and obsessed with helping businesses transform to meet their future needs. In this podcast, she takes us through those early years, some time in her defense, uh, unleashing her own brilliance by developing this, this business that she has now created that is really growing at scale and at speed, Adroita. And she shares with her with us um, the importance of continued investment in yourself, the need to learn always. She talks openly about exploring and finding a tribe of mentors to support her in her vision. And the critical part that team and experience is going to pay play as we navigate the significant changes that she sees heading our way, which are going to impact us globally, us individually, and us in organizations. Um, so buckle up, get yourself comfortable. Um, this is a long conversation, but an awesome and smart conversation. Please welcome today's guest, Sarah Pavillard. Sarah Pavillard, welcome to my podcast. It's so awesome to have you here. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Janine. It's the first day of spring, so I'm feeling very hopeful for warmer days and uh, longer days over the next couple of weeks. I know, we were just saying off air that uh, being from the UK and now even 20 years later for living in Australia, it always amazes me that the first day of spring, it's like the weather knows. The first day of winter, the weather knows. The first day of summer, the weather knows. In England, it just seems to be the same all the year round, irrespective of spring, summer, autumn, winter. So I'm always amazed on the first day of any season in Australia that 
somehow light changes, everything changes, temperature, it's, it's phenomenal. But it definitely felt fabulous this morning. Um, so I can't wait to share a little bit more about you and how you've unleashed your brilliance as part of this uh, series. Um, I've known you, Sarah, for, oh my goodness, how long now? It must be. I think it's 10 years this year. Oh my gosh. Oh, we need to go out and celebrate. Very late uh, 2011 or early 2012. Wow, 10 years. Mm. And um, what I love about your journey, your story is like so many of ours, there's the highs, the lows, there's the challenges. Um, But in the recent years, you've absolutely landed in that beautiful spot and sweet spot of knowing so clearly what it is that you're doing. And I can't wait to to share some of that with our audience. So let's let them get to know you a little bit first. I'm just going to throw a quick, a few quick fire questions at you um, so that our audience can find out a little bit more about you. So Sarah, um, where are you from? Where are you from in Australia? Are you Sydney born and bred or somewhere else? I can't remember. So so I, I am Sydney born and bred, but I traveled or moved around a lot as a child. So, you know, born in Sydney and then uh, my dad was finishing his medical studies in Calgary. So I lived in Canada for about four years as a child in early primary school. Then we came back to Sydney and then I started high school in Newcastle and then finished high school in Sydney. So a bit of a mix, really. So cool. And you're here now in Sydney, uh, enjoying our current lockdown. Are you a, what was your first job? Can you remember? Oh, um, it was working in a music shop. Um, so there was a, a store in Newcastle called Latham's Music and I used to sell sheet music and instruments and uh, that sort of thing. In the days when people would come in and actually order their sheet music out of these huge catalogues and you could only keep so much in the store, um, so, so often people would come in, you know, it was like a mail order to the business and then we'd, we'd distribute it. Um, but I actually did a lot of retail work uh, in high school. I, I quite liked the sales side of it, actually. And and sales is such a key part of what you're doing now. So um, thinking about uh, something fundamentally that has changed you in terms of a book, a TED Talk, a podcast, what's one that springs to mind that almost is on your always recommend list? Uh, there's probably two, actually. So there's a podcast and a book. So I'll talk to the book first. It's probably the book that I share with people more than any other book. It's a book by an author named Gretchen Rubin. It's called Better Than Before. And it's about how daily habits um, are the things that are most impactful to contributing to your overall habits, uh, to your overall ha- happiness. I read that book for the first time oh, maybe 2013, 2014, sometime around there. But I think that that is a book that just changed my life. Um, and Gretchen Rubin wrote it after she had done a bit of a personal experiment on what it means, what it takes to be happy. Um, she, 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 for, for a year, 
Um, Each month, she implemented a new habit in her life, whether it was eating healthier, doing a new type of exercise, meditating, and just tried to measure the impact. And then she wrote a book about it. But then a whole lot of people uh, wrote to her after the book was published and asked the question, how is it that you were able to just turn that habit on for a month and then turn it off afterwards? Um, And so then she started researching what it is that contributes to good habit forming and why it is that it's the small daily habits, not the huge big holidays or, you know, big milestone events that actually have the biggest impact on on happiness. And I learned a lot about myself from that book and it triggered some lifestyle changes for me. And I read it at a time when, um, you know, we were going through a difficult period as a family together and um, and that that book really made a big difference. Um, so I, I share that book. It's probably I've probably given away thirty or forty copies of that book. Um, the other thing that is my go to is a podcast called Masters of Scale. It's by um, a fellow named Reed Hoffman, who was the found, one of the founders of LinkedIn, and it's really interesting interviews with founders of businesses that have. Um, gone through mega scaling, whether it's Canva or LinkedIn, Sheryl um, Sandberg from Google. But Reed picks a theme about what it takes to scale a business. And I learn so much and it gives me so much food for thought um, when I'm thinking about just the context of what is a very small business compared to theirs. Um, so that that would be my two, Gretchen Rubin's Better Than Before and Reid Hoffman's Masters of Scale. Fabulous. Uh, I'll be checking both of those out. Now, what is it that you do now? Can you quickly share with our listeners what it is that you do right now? So I'm the CEO of a defence services and consulting firm called Adroita. Um, that's a play on the word adroit. And, um, but my, my history and my training is as a weapons engineer. So, um, my, my background is, um, as a naval officer and a, and a weapons engineer, um, but, you know, various sets of circumstances, um, have led, led me to starting my company about five and a half years ago. And whilst it started as, um, you know, one person doing one role for one client. Uh, I've now got to the point where we've got a growing team and I'm really leading the company, not just a particular role. So, um, and in terms of what that actually means on a day-to-day basis, it's, uh, I feel like a jack of all trades and a master of none most days, but uh, it's it, there, there is actually real breadth to the kind of activities and things that, you know, I might get done in any given week. And you're uh, living and breathing that Masters of Scale right now. I'm not actually quite sure we ever become uh, masters of anything when we're running our own business. It almost is like jack of all trades, isn't it? It's constantly evolving. Um, I want to chat about this, uh, you know, you, that early early stage of your career, the weapons engineer, the naval officer. Um Thinking back to that decision you made to go into the Defence Force, can you remember uh, the moment or that watershed moment that that made you make that decision or led you to that decision, Sarah? 
Well, I think there were probably a couple of build-up moments um, or many, many moments that led to that. So I think the first thing is that, you know, as a child and in my early teens, I was always encouraged to think about science um, or, you know, a technology-based career. Um, my father is still a doctor. Um, he was also a researcher and he always had a curious mind and still does. Um, but as kids, you know, we had we had several expectations for the O'Loughlin children. We had options to be a Nobel Prize winner, an Olympic athlete, um, there was one more, oh, or a nuclear physicist. So the bar was set pretty low in my family. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, that's, that's, uh, that's a huge amount of expectation to be put on you, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but conversely, I think that what it meant was actually that we always felt like we could be anything. Mm. And um, so I started becoming interested in engineering as a career or as an option probably through my rowing partner at the time. I used to row at school um, or not at school, but I was in a rowing club and my rowing partner was a, a chemical engineer who was studying at the University of Newcastle at the time. So she was probably someone who I saw in my life who was doing engineering and doing this sort of technology-based career. And then at about the same time, um, uh, a couple of Navy ships were in Newcastle uh, undertaking refit and maintenance activities. One of them was HMAS Australia, which was subsequently um, catastrophically damaged in a fire in the late 90s. Anyhow, I did a ship visit just out of curiosity, really, and then through that got to know about the different kind of careers that Navy could offer. And I went and did some Navy work experience in year 10 somehow manage, I don't, I'm not sure that you'd actually be able to do the kind of work experience now that I did in the mid-90s, um, but each sort of interaction that I had further piqued my interest. And so in year 11, I applied for what was then a scholarship to the Defence Force Academy. And so I was accepted and allocated a place um, in year 11 to uh, ADFA and then really made the final decision at the vinegar stroke. It wasn't, you know, it was a huge decision to make to leave home pretty much straight after school whilst everyone was still out partying to go and join the military. Um, it was quite a different university experience to what um, you would have in a in a normal university environment. But um, I got on the bus in late uh January 1997 and you know got driven to Canberra with all the other people from Sydney who were who were joining up from there and I'll never forget getting out of the bus into the just the searing heat of a January Canberra day and anyone who's listening to this podcast who knows Canberra will know exactly what I'm talking about and you can smell the bush and it almost hits you in the face um and then, then you know, uh, we started getting shouted at. So it was kind of like what you see in the movies but with Australian accents. <laughs> so how long How long was your time at ADFA? Is it four years, longer? How long is it? Oh, it was longer? a bit longer. So um, a typical um, 
uh, engineering degree at the Defence Academy is four years. Mm-hmm. I did what we at the time called the extended engineering program, where you take five years to do your four-year degree. Um, and so I finished at the Defence Academy in the early 2000s and um, and completed a Bachelor of uh, Electrical Engineering during that time. And the interesting thing is um, when, you know, at the Defence Academy, not only do you have your standard uh, academic education, but throughout the year, every all the cadets and midshipmen undertake military professionalisation, um, physical training, you, know, you learn about defence writing, military protocol. So uh, LA Eng and any engineering degree actually is quite a high workload and then on top of that there's a significant demand with the additional military education and training. So it is, um, it, it, it can be quite full on for, um, you know, those uh, and for students who are already undertaking sort of a high demand academic workloads. So you graduated from ADFA. What happened then? Were you, did you go into a sort of a standard job or were you posted anywhere? What happened next? So after that, um, I went with my Navy engineering peers to a base called HMA Cerberus, which is on the Mornington Peninsula and undertook the what was then called the weapons uh, electrical engineering application course so that's so post degree we then had our navy professionalization to train us to undertake the role of a junior weapons engineer at sea and at sea uh, the weapons engineer is responsible for ensuring the availability and readiness and making sure the maintenance is completed for the um, weapons systems and the sensing systems and the communication systems. So if you think about it in terms of the eyes, you know, and ears and voice of the ship and the shield that protects the ship and anything else that the ship is there to protect as part of its mission. Fabulous. And you've you've been posted overseas during your career. The reality is... There's not many, I'm imagining, female weapons engineers in the defence. What was that whole experience like? uh, Well, it was mixed really. So I would say that my my experiences, you know, as a junior female engineer in Navy were probably much more egalitarian and, and modern than maybe my experiences as a first year female midshipman at the Defence Force Academy. At the time that I started the Defence Force Academy, it was really under the spotlight um, because of various behavioural issues that had been identified. Uh, And that was, you know, being managed and and dealt with and has evolved extraordinarily since that time. Um, But I guess the challenge in Navy was there weren't many role models, especially technical specialists, who were visible to young engineers like myself. I think that's really changed since then. Uh, In the Navy now, the two most senior engineers are both women, which I think is, you know, an extraordinary achievement and a testament to their, both of their capabilities. Um, 
but I think at the time that that was something that I really lacked, you know, a female technical role model um, that I could imagine myself being like, you know, some years down the track. I think that that has really shifted as the proportion of women in Navy has increased. Um, there, there is still, you know, the, the same problem that we actually have across society, which is the lack of uh, women engineers in particular, the lack of participation of women in um, certain science and technology and engineering careers, uh, you know, inequities in you know promotion and professional development. But that's a broader social issue, I think, um, rather than a you know a defence specific one. Hmm. Thinking about your time in defence, Sarah. So. Um, you know, that time here overseas, the various decisions you've had to make, the things you've been involved in. Um, what do you think that taught you that you are now bringing into your work now? Oh, I mean, it would be so hard to list everything that it taught me because so much of who I am now is because of those early career experiences. And you know, where you land at at a point in time is the net outcome of everything you have done before. Um, and so both the the wins and the sort of dips form, you know, your character down the track. So I, I think probably at a high level it's taught me a lot about teamwork. It's taught me a huge amount about leadership, both the kind of leadership styles that I like and warm to and the kind of leadership style that I want to live as well as those, you know, leadership behaviours that I really want to make sure I don't carry on, um, you know, as I lead my business. Mm. Uh, it's taught me, you know, the fundamental important importance of, you know, technology really in um, any business application Um I've learned about through both my technical background but the type of work that I've done um, to think as a systems thinker. So systems of systems, how do organisations generate outcomes um, and how do they, you know, elements of that organisation work together. Um, you know, it's taught me a lot about risk management. Um, yeah, it's just so hard to list. But I was very lucky. I had a, actually a very unusual career as a weapons engineer. Um, you know, very early was standard sort of career track, went to sea as a, a junior assistant weapons engineer, deployed in a ship, um, was in the Middle East during the major hostilities in 2003, came back, did an early um, systems engineer test and evaluation job in a big upgrade project uh, but then I went on to be the flag lieutenant to the Chief of Navy, and that's a really unusual role for an engineering career path. Mm. And that was a very formative role, and I think I was very lucky to have the kind of exposure that I did um, to understanding how Navy operates at the highest levels, how Navy or defence interacts with government. Um, I had a lot of interface with you know, the captains, I would suppose, of uh, defence industry at the time. So I got understanding and insight that was beyond what I would ordinarily have been exposed to at that very early career stage. 
And you mentioned there that um, you've been in conflict situations. Um, how how do you reckon that's affected you? Is it something that you bring with you back into um the world when you leave the forces does it stay with you or is it just a job at the time how how oh, for me personally just a job but mm. um other people have very different experiences yeah. and really in the scheme of people who've deployed and experienced um uh you know those um Afghanistan and the Iraq campaigns um my experience was you know, pretty vanilla, I would say, compared yeah. to what some other people experience. Mm. Um, having said that, some of the things that I really do remember is sort of the camaraderie and the some of the team spirit from being at sea in a ship. You know, in a ship at sea, it's a really, it feels huge when you're in it, mm. but yet it is just a tiny blip on a huge ocean. But that is your whole world. And, um, you know, I had some fantastic leaders um, who really formed my sort of view about Navy on, on that deployment. And, you know, I also was, um, we, we got to see firsthand how sort of big organisational decisions can in fact impact, you know, the teamwork and cohesion of a, a ship at sea. Um, there's an interesting story relating to that, which I won't go into now. Um, but I have to say being at sea does prepare one for things like lockdowns. Mm. Um, you know, leave being cancelled in the Navy prepares, you know, you for disappointments when you can't leave your house. Um, uh, vaccine rollouts in Navy prepare you for, you know, vaccine rollouts um, and mass vaccination campaigns that are happening at the moment. So mm. it's actually quite interesting how some of the things that you experience in, in what for some people is a really arduous environment make you resilient and gritty, I suppose. Mm. And there's so, there's so much of what you've shared already that I now see you bringing into your role now as the founder and CEO of Adroita. But before we get into that, how do you reckon failure has set you up for success? Uh, look, I think um, when I look back, things that didn't work out, the things that went wrong, are without a doubt the things I learned the most from. Mm. Whether it was from, um, you know, stuff-ups as a junior midshipman, you know, and getting in trouble for something I didn't do or something I forgot um, or missteps in business. I don't think that there's any person that leads a growing business that doesn't look back and think, I could have done that better. In hindsight, I could have made a better decision about a person coming into the team or, you know, it's actually through those errors, though, or through those things that didn't go according to plan from which I've learned the most. Um, and really what one of the things I'm trying to create within our business is the opportunity for team members, you know, to take considered risks 
Um, and if something goes wrong, that's okay. But as long as we don't do it again, that we use that as an opportunity to learn and grow and adapt, um, but not be hampered by um, by failures, which happen all the time. Mm. Mm. So you left the defence um, and you are now the founder and CEO of Adroita. Can you remember that the watershed moment that um, formed in your idea the business that you've created now? Like where did that idea come from in terms of there's something here that I need to create evolve turn into something can you remember a moment where you saw that opportunity look I think again there were it was a convergence of circumstances so uh, after I had my my third child who's a beautiful eight-year-old boy now um I went back and did some reserve work with Navy and I was really lucky to do that because it was in a capstone program and I got to work with some people that I'd previously worked with and I got to work on some really interesting projects. But while I was doing that, um, there were some significant changes to defence policy happening at the, that time and it was becoming evident how much investment was um, being forecast into the defence budgets and and I also saw the opportunity to, you know, be like some of the other people around me. So, you know, the individuals who were doing contracted work for defence. So they were contributing to defence's purpose. They were doing work um, that was solving quite complex problems for defence, but they weren't wearing a uniform and they weren't a public servant. And so uh, an opportunity came up with a, a defence consulting company um, who have since then experienced extraordinary growth and I sort of said yes and because I had previously had businesses I knew how to turn a business on very quickly and what I would need to do just to get up and running and to be able to operate so that happened quite quickly and then my first 12 months operating Adroida I was really just getting my skates on in that consulting contracting space um, and working out what would be next. Um, but I didn't start it just to be a one-person business, but at that time I didn't really know what we would look like. And then I hired my first team member who I actually happened to join the Navy with and is also an ex-Navy weapons engineer and could see that I could offer career opportunities and benefits um, and and growth potential that maybe that person wouldn't get as a Navy reservist, for example. The other thing that I was observing is that women in particular in the defence sort of contracting industry and defence industry more broadly were finding it hard to get part-time work. So with this increasing demand for very highly skilled specialists in defence industry, I just found it stunning that big defence companies, consulting firms, contracting firms, and even defence itself in some instances, 
weren't willing to look at the skills and capabilities someone could bring to the table, Mm. irrespective of whether or not they could do 40 hours a week. So one of the opportunities that I see for us as an employer, but also a supplier to defence is to really advocate for good people who might not be available under a traditional contracting consulting model to still be able to to deliver value into a program where their skill set is really in need. To me, it's just absurd that somebody who is a intelligence officer or an ex-intelligence officer with a high-level security clearance and specialist technical skills or a um, you know an, an uh, electrical engineer with maritime experience that they can't get work because they're not available full time and so what that inevitably leads to is that those people end up moving into probably less um, financially rewarding careers in other industries because they haven't been able to access, you know, the work in the defence sector. So that's something that we're trying to challenge in whatever way we can. How would you wrap it up then in terms of what's driving you right now? What's driving you to take this this gem of an opportunity and idea that you saw to keep uh, moving forward and building it? Um, you know, what what is the fundamental bigger driver impact here that you are that's keeping you going, Sarah? Uh, it's very clear to me and it is really linked to what we talk about as the purpose of Adroida, which is about engineering success for sovereign capability. Um, so I'll break that down a little bit. Firstly, I, I've grown up in a way with a spirit of service, um, but both through my childhood actually and then through my Navy career. I don't think anyone who isn't open to serving something greater than themselves, you know, volunteers to join the military. Um, So that spirit of service is actually important to me and it's something we look for in anyone who joins the business. Um, But what that means in the context of engineering success for sovereign capability, we, I feel very lucky that we have this incredible life an opportunity that we have access to here in Australia. And we can support defence to be more resilient and self-reliant, you know, to support our national interests by helping defence solve some of its complex problems. Now, what we do is just a small microcosm of a very complex, very big industry and department. Um, but we do contribute to that through the work that our people do directly with the department. We also support that by working with Australian industry, whether it's engineering firms or project management firms, manufacturers, um, unlock what we call their latent capability to support defence. And so by doing that, we bring more, a, a, a greater industry base to defence to access but we also help future-proof those businesses by identifying and, and helping them access um, new, healthy, long-term revenue streams. So, you know, I like to say to my team um, and to people who are potentially exploring joining the business, 
our branding for Adroita is these red and orange tones, but we have a navy heart and some of those values that many of us grew up with we're imbuing in the business without it being, you know, a subset of the military because that's really not what we're about and not what we're the, what we are there to do. So, Sarah, you talked then about how the values of the Navy are so imbued in your company, um, at that mm. heart of uh, being in service. Um, can you share with our listeners uh, maybe the top top three values that for you are a fundamental heart and part of your being as an organisation? So the top few are firstly adroit or adroitness. Um, our name is really meaningful actually because it talks to what we do, who we are, what we promise. Um, so by adroit, I mean being clever and skillful in our approach, adaptable, innovative, looking at problems you know through a different lens. Um, another one of our values is excellence. You know, we're actually building our culture to be about creating adroitness and excellence in our team. Um, trust is absolutely fundamental and it needs to be unbreakable. Um, we are trusted by our defence clients and partners um, with, you know, sensitive information, complex problems, it's also a fundamental in a sort of security-managed environment. But we're also trusted by um, our advisory clients to, you know, take care of their information and and really support them with setting them in the right direction to, to access defence. Um, and good judgment, really. Uh, and, and probably the final thing, I know it's a bit more than three, but curiosity, you know, being open to new ways of thinking, new ways of solving problems, not chucking away the old but just being open to the potential, I suppose. So with that in mind, what are, what are some of the significant changes that, that you see impacting your industry or your profession over the next few years? Oh, well, there's a couple of things. I think one of them is actually quite interesting, has become almost a topic on the national agenda, which is this concept around sovereign capability and sovereignty. So Defence has been talking about this for a long time. Lots of commentators in the defence sector have been encouraging government to be more proactive in securing Australia's resilient supply chains and so on. Um, Defence really started putting this high on its agenda in about 2016. But with the COVID crisis that really started impacting Australia in about la March last year, it became um, a, a topic of conversation that was happening around dinner tables and boardrooms all across the country. So this need for Australia to build a resilient and self-reliant industry capability for critical skills, um, critical manufacturing capacity, I think is something that we will see not just impacting the defence sector, but impacting industry more broadly. 
And that's becoming evident through various policy and grant and other initiatives that government has been releasing over the last 12 months or so. Mm. The other thing um, that's really going to impact us and that has already um, and is almost a lead into that question around sovereign capability is our changing relationships um, in the world. So there has been a very big strategic shift shift to a new focus, a renewed focus on the Pacific. Mm. Um, that's our neighbourhood and we are coming to the end of, I think, a really long, you know, maybe nearly a century of, you know, relative stability in global affairs. I don't think that we can expect that to last indefinitely. I hope that it will, but I don't think that we should be planning for that. The third thing I think is going to completely change how we do business in this country is the impact of digitisation and converging technologies. Um, I, I do think that the COVID crisis has really pushed many businesses and many sectors into accelerating transformation that would have happened anyway over the next five years. I don't think that we can expect that the rate of change for business will slow down. I think it's going to increase. So businesses need to be prepared for that and I believe that it also creates extraordinary opportunity for those who are thinking far enough ahead and taking time to understand how these megatrends and the technology changes are going to impact them day to day. You know, we're, we're talking about the kind of technology step changes that we saw moving from a flip phone to, you know, an iPhone 12 in the next five years. And so this this is really going to, yes, impact business and individuals, but I reckon it's also going to impact leadership, how we make decisions, etc. And one of the things you've said a few times during this conversation is you, you've talked to leadership, you've talked to great leaders, you've talked about those people that influenced you and inspired you. Um, if you were to describe either yourself now or the leader you're in, aspiring to be, what do you think is going to be critical in terms of leadership skills moving forward, given what you've just spoken about? Absolutely, your ability to identify and elevate great people to build a team, not just, you know, in a leadership role in a business like mine where the the business is going to rely on an amazing team and a growing team to succeed, but also to personally build a team around you to challenge and generate new knowledge. One of the things, you know, I have had other businesses and I think one of the things that has absolutely been different this time around and is now generating such a positive impact is that I have I've, we have built an incredible team of amazing professionals within Adroida, but I've also built a team of advisors and, you know, Janine, to your point, butt kickers and promoters, pit crew, teachers around me so that I know who to ask, who I trust 
when I have a problem that I can't solve myself. Um, the internet has a lot of answers, but it doesn't have them all. And there's only so much that you can Google. And by having um, an, you know, a fantastic team of mentors, advisors, experts um, that can help fast track problem solving so that me and my team can then focus on what we do best and what we can deliver the best, which is getting great outcomes for our clients, whether they're the defence clients, our other industry partners, um, or thinking about you know future initiatives for the business. I think that that has absolutely, um, as a leader, is the most critical element. Um, the other thing that I think is so important is having a mind for learning continuously, being open to looking beyond, say, our own sector, looking beyond mm. trends that are going to be impacting us, but but reading widely and learning from the successes and failures of others before. Um, I, I spend as much time as I can learning about other businesses, other entrepreneurs, other leaders, and I still feel like I don't have enough time to learn what I want to. So I think that they're the, the two critical things, creating an amazing team within your business, you know, a tribe of mentors around you and having a mindset for nonstop learning. I love that. Love that. The, criti- the critical nature of team and excellence, that tribe of mentors, absolutely. We we don't know what we don't know and that requirement to have mentors and people around you that can lift you up that are not necessarily in competition but can lift you up and challenge you um, and push you past your own boundaries I think is absolutely critical and um, that concept of learning from others it's on the shoulders of giants isn't it Uh, that we all Mm. get there on the on the flip side, Sarah, um, because you know you've had had an interesting career from military to to business. You touched on the fact that you had a failed business. You've come back. You've built this. You've got big big vision. Um, thinking through that, what's what's one piece of advice that that you may have heard over your career that you just if you could throw a rock at it and tell people to ignore it, what would it be? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what's the one piece of advice you'd wish you'd listen to? Oh, well, we can ask that. um, I'll ask that next. What about the one that you go, oh, my God, I wish people had stopped listening to that? (laughs) Um, Oh, that it's it's just too hard. It's just too much work, you know. Um, That's probably the one thing that I just, you know, why don't you just slow down? Um, you don't have to do that. Um, I, I think that you're either driven in a particular direction or you're not. Mm. I think that I got the entrepreneurial bug really when I was very young. And funnily enough, I had little businesses in primary school. Um, you know, the first one ever was picking flowers from the bush behind our house in Gladesville and selling them at the school and getting in trouble for making money at school. Um, Then I used to sell them around the street. Um, Even when I was at the Defence Academy, started like a little mentoring business. So I used to go out and do um, maths tutoring for high school kids 
when I was at the Defence Academy. I didn't need to, but it was something I wanted to do. So I think kind of had that bug mm. and and I think if it's in you, it's in you. It, it, mm. It's almost like a fire that you can't put out. So I, I do try and ignore or just put to the side that you need to slow down or mm-hmm. to me I'm going to keep going. The key is finding the right balance between going hard and then managing my energy so that I rest and recover. So then when I need to surge again, I can. And that's, you know, quite a a complex balancing act, you know, with family and my husband, who is just the most incredible support and champion. Um, My team, you know, that tribe of mentors and supporters around me. Um, But, you know, that there's there's a lot of caution, right? There is risk in, in what we do. And if I listen to the don't do it or you should just go and get a job, um, I wouldn't be doing what we're doing now, which is not only having impact with our team and our clients now, but there is so much more to be done. Um, so, yeah. So I'm going to ask because I'm sure there are people listening that want me to ask, what are, what are your top three things that you do to keep that balance because as a high achieving results oriented driven individual um that as you've all said you're juggling a lot of balls right now raising a family building a successful a fast a fast growth business that is scaling at speed and managing team and learning and growing and all of these things um what are your non-negotiables when it comes to as I said, up to the top three things, up to three things that you do to to keep that balance, knowing that we don't do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm looking, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Everything's a little bit negotiable yeah. most of the time. Um, and I've got too many balls to juggle to be so definitive about a schedule. Mm-hmm. But what I do do is I'm, I have this incredible community at, a gym that I go to, um, I ran my, well, sort of staggered my first marathon in 2018 and I formed some amazing friendships with my run club friends. And so spending time with those people on the weekend and having a, you know, a, a, an, an exercise routine that might be a balance between some strength and some yoga and some running or some walking literally depending on how I feel because um, some days I have more energy, other days I have none and I just need to recharge. So that's definitely one of them. Um, eating well most of the time, I think that you get a lot of energy from what you feed yourself and being conscious about that really does make a difference. And then probably the third non-negotiable is carving out time away with my family Um, And that's probably one of the things that with the COVID lockdowns and the limited ability to travel is that I have really missed and I think that my family have missed it as well because I I can surge when we need to surge but just having that thing to look forward to, whether it's a couple of days, you know, at our favourite place on the south coast or somewhere warm and sunny, knowing that that's 
you know, at a defined point in the future and that I'll be with the family and we'll just be together enjoying life together, um, you know, that that to me is really quite important. And it's also um, a way of the, the children and particularly benefiting from the hard work we're doing, you know, the, the time that I'm not able to be with them or doing their homework or, you know, the other things that, you know, if you could do everything you would, but the reality is you can't. So, Sarah, to, to wrap this up, I first of all, thank you for sharing with us your journey, um, the work that you're doing now, and equally um, challenging all of us to just think about some of those significant changes that are heading our way that as leaders, business owners, individuals, we need to be aware of. So thank you for sharing that. Um, the final question I've got is, you know, this, this podcast is all about unleashing brilliance. What does unleashing brilliance mean to you? I think at the end of the day, unleashing brilliance is about unlocking potential. Um, I think that everyone has brilliance within them. I don't think about myself as being particularly brilliant, but I think I've over many years started to be able to unlock, you know, the net potential of my experiences, that of my team, that of the people around me, you know, in this little microcosm of my world. Um, so that's really what I think um, Unleashing Brilliance is really about, is is unlocking that potential that really is hidden in everybody. Love it. Sarah, if uh, if we could bring those uh, people that you graduated from ADFA onto this podcast right now, what would you say to them? I've got no idea, Janine. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about, you know, the life since then and your journey and what you're doing now, <laughs> what would you say to them apart from let's have a drink and let's go out and party? What would you say to that them? That is actually probably what I would say. <laughs> In fact, the funny thing is, you know, it is a small world and I'm lucky enough to be working with many of those people that I went to the Defence Academy with. So, um, you know, one of my electrical engineering peers is now one of my team members. Um, in a, a project that I was recently doing quite a lot of work with, I I happen to work with a couple of people that I went to the Defence Academy with. So I actually come across them, you know, pe- people from that time often. So I don't really know what I would say, to be honest, because so many of them have had just really extraordinary careers and, um, yeah, I, I, I find that so hard to answer, Janine. I don't know. <laughs> but what it does show. You've changed but you haven't. That's probably what I would say. <laughs> what it does show for me, though, is the power of connection. Um, you know, when you look at, as you've said, so many of them are still part of your world, some of them you work with, the fact that many have scaled in their own careers or they're doing incredible things, 
um, what it what it signals to me is, you know, the people that you meet through your life, you talked about your experience being the golden thread and culminating, converging to what you're doing now. I also think there's a there's a beautiful undercurrent to your work in terms of the people that you meet, that you've met along the way. Um, and the golden thread throughout all of them is this, as you talk, as you you shared for yourself, is this spirit of service of a commitment to to change things um, and to do things in the spirit of sovereign capability. So that's what that's what I've heard. Uh, and because I know you, I know that's that's such a key key part of it. Connection matters, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And I think I haven't understood just how important relationships and and network are until maybe the last three years really um in in terms of how you just don't know when someone you once interacted with might drift back into your life for some reason and and I find that um even in a context of say working with clients to be able to anchor a conversation around a person that we might know in common or that we have, you know, both worked with can be transformative in actually quickly building a relationship, for example. Um, so I really, I've really only come to understand how it's who you know really is, it's who you know, but it's about, you know, authentically building those relationships really and trying not to you know, burn down the house on the way out, um, you know, in, in, in any context really. Yeah. How do you enter gracefully and exit gracefully? Sarah, it's been an absolute joy chatting to you today. There's always so much wisdom in what you share. Um, you know, I love that concept of, well, for yourself, the importance of learning always and standing on the shoulders of giants, learning from other people that have been there and a a willingness and curiosity to explore what you can take from their experience into your own world. That um, idea around surrounding yourself with a tribe of mentors, of people that can actually help you, guide you, challenge you, push you. And what is really clear in everything you've talked about is, is this concept of building that team and how important people are, uh, particularly with the world that we're in now and the world that is heading our way, the importance of people, not only their engagement and their support and their willingness to do the work, but also what they're bringing to that conversation. Mm. And um, the final piece, um, which I just love what you shared, was um, and it's the perfect way to finish this 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 podcast around unleashing brilliance. You, you said, if the fire is in you, um, explore, experiment. Most importantly, find a way to follow it. And mm. I think that sums up exactly what you have done, and exactly what the message is as part of this podcast series. Sarah, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Janine. It was an absolute delight speaking to you again. Before I go, actually, how can people get hold of you if they want to find out? I forgot to ask that question. (laughs) A couple of ways. Um, They can contact me via LinkedIn. There are not that many Sarah Pavelards who work at a Droita in defence industry. Um, Or they can reach out through our website, um, adroita.com.au. That's 
adroita.com.au. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Janine. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.